Welcome back to God's Brand. I almost messed that up. I almost said God's Brand's Book Club. What was that? <laughs> so it's your host, Puzzle Making Poe, and I'm here with another God's Brand episode. That's all these are. This is not a God's Brand episode. This is on the God's Brand platform, and we are recording a Grown Man's Book Club episode. Or you can say the segment on the Grown Man's Book Club series. Um, so my public speaking has not improved, and I'm upset with myself. I want to see real skills getting developed with these public speaking abilities to be able to communicate with you guys on a higher level to be able to get down and really diagnose what we have to do and to do that we have to speak clearly we have to be able to be honest and be able to be sincere with our words and not just throw slang and nonsense words into the conversation to distract you i don't i'm not here to distract you i want you to be able to know exactly what's going on So, we are on page 39, second to last paragraph of the Tulsa 1921 massacre. Uh, I think we're on chapter 5, which is the story that set Tulsa ablaze. As we learned in the last episode during this chapter... That saying, the story that set Tulsa ablaze, was actually one of the headlines for one of the newspapers in that area. And a big controversy with this chapter that we've read so far is the fact that there may have been a first report that came out. And that first report had may been covered over. Um, which is a little interesting. We don't really know too much of it. So let's just read forward and see what we kind of get with the rest of this. Between 8 and 8.30, three white men entered the courthouse. They were met by McCollin and Aaron Short, who had been elected county commissioner but had yet taken office. McCollin ordered them out, but the men gathered, meekly complied, and returned to their automobiles. Mr. McCollin watched as the crowd of 20 or 30 gathered around the car. McCollin told his deputies to run the elevator to the top floor, disable it, and barricade themselves in the jail. Then he crossed the street to the car containing the three potential troublemakers. I was jeered by men in the car and by persons standing around the street and sidewalk. McCollin told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, they called me a nigger lover, but the men in the car drove off. This rather half-hearted attempt to reach Roland may have quickly fizzled, but it fed the spiral racial fear, anger, and hater the way he in air heated fire. It and the whites' refusal to go home would bring yet another wave 
of concerned African Americans. This one even bigger and better arm than the ones before. Word soon reached Greenwood's two movie theaters, the Dixie and the Dreamland, and guns were passed around in at least one of them. Cars and trucks were corroborated. Some may have thought Sheriff McCullen asked for them. All were determined to make a statement to stand up, not just for Dick Rowland, but for the race, for their race. So the inability of McCullen's Gulfston, police captain George Balin, and a few others to dis- disappear, the disappear the whites at the courthouse was crucial. Sheriff McCullen probably did not have the manpower to do it. And certainly not after ordering his, abil- his able deputies to barricade themselves inside the jail. The city police did have the manpower, barely, had it been properly organized and deployed, but it was not. The local National Guard units, especially in conjunction with the police, would have made a difference. They had been brought to bear during the early stages of the crisis, but no one asked for them until it was too late. By 10 o'clock, there were perhaps 2,000 whites at the courthouse, perhaps 300 blacks, estimated of both groups very widely, had joined them with with many more conspiracists on the downtown streets. A Negro noted someone looking out of a window of the Tulsa World Building at 317 Street Boulevard Avenue, two blocks south of the courthouse, walked into the middle of the street in front of the office carrying a long shotgun loosing under his arm. In a few minutes, a big car drew up besides. Disarm one of them was heard to say, but you bet I won't disarm. Goldstone and Askin had essentially washed their hands of the situation after McClellan spurned their suggestion to take Roland out of the city. Now they grew uneasy. Early on, when trouble first began bubbling to the surface, City Commissioner C.S. Yonkman had found the police chief at the station and asked him what was going on. Gusto said he did not know, but he had heard that there was a crowd at the courthouse. Oddly, he seemed more worried that mob violence would be turned against police headquarters than he was about the county jail holding the supposed focal point of the seething ill will. But as dusk approached, the tension mounted. The chief and his boss, police commissioner Alkson, began to grasp the seriousness of the situation. In so doing, however, they did virtually nothing to break up or subdue the hostile whites. Even Yukman's orders to turn fire hoses on the whites surrounding the police station was ignored. Instead, Gustin Askin addressed only the black side of the equation. Askin dispatched one of his black officers, Harry Pack, to Greenwood on the recognition missions, recon- reconnaissance mission and sent all available police to keep the Negroes from coming to town. Gulston ordered Detective Ike Wilson, Seg- Sergeant Cloud Bryce, and Officer Sid Jackson to in- anticipate a band of blacks forming a second in a- Cincinnati. 
about six blocks northeast of the courthouse and a block and a half north of the Frisco tracks. Gulston himself won out the Captain Gord Blaine, probably the TPD's boldest and most fierce, fearless officer at the courthouse. Gulston and Blaine observed the large crowd and concluded it would be suicide to try to dis disarm anyone. Driving on, they encountered three carloads of blacks and about six blocks away at 40, 40th and Elaine. Gulston and Blaine followed them back to the courthouse, then returned to the police station badly shaken. Shortly after 10 o'clock, Gulston asked Major James a bell of the local National Guard for men to clear the streets of Negroes. Bell had learned of the courthouse disturbance sometime earlier, not from law enforcement or city authorities, but from two of his men, a private canton, canton and a sergeant pale. Paying. About nine, the pair came to my door and reported that a crowd of whites were gathered near the courthouse and that threats of lynching a Negro were being made and that it was reported the Negroes in Little Africa were arming to prevent it. Bell wrote about a month later, as I had heard rumors of this kind on other occasions that did not amount to anything serious, I did not feel greatly worried, Bell continued. Nevertheless, Bell sent Canton and Peyton back to the courthouse to get more information. They called McCollin and Goulson. McCollin told Bell everything was under control, but Goulson was less confident. The chief reported that things were a little threatening that it was reported that Negroes were driving around town in a threatening mood, Bell report. Bell suggested the city officials contact Governor Robertson and ask him to authorize the use of National Guard. Next, Bell notified the commanding officers of three National Guard units based in Tulsa to quietly assemble as many of their men as possible. As Bell was Changing into his uniform, a messenger arrived with news that whites had shown up at the National Guard armory across the alley from Bell's house, demanding rifles and ammunition. The armory was about a half mile east of the courthouse on 6th Street, across from what was the Central Park. Summer training camp at Fort Still in the southwest part of the state was only a few days away from the men and were armory prepared for this trip. Bell recounted, grabbing my pistol in one hand and my belt in another, I jumped out of the back door running down the west side of the armory building. I saw several men apparently pulling at the window grating after chasing those men away. Bell went to the front of the building and found a mob of whites, three or four hundred strong, clamoring for a mission i asked them what they wanted bell recalled one of them replied rifles and ammunition i explained to them that they could not get anything here someone shouted we don't know about that we guess we can backed by national guard captain frank van voris tpd motorcycle officers leo irish and a citizen named williams bell told the crowd the armory was full of armored soldiers who would shoot prominently, anyone trying to get inside. This, final, this finally did the trick. The mob disp dispersed, and Bell ordered a guard around the armory with 
one man on the roof. It was at this point that Bell called Gulston the second time and Gulston asked for men to clear the streets. Bell said he had to give an order from the governor and urge haste in doing so before it was too late. That point had already been reached. Wilkson, Breach, and Jackson had intercepted the group of black men at 2nd and Cincinnati and had almost taken them into withdrawing when Deputy, Deputy Sheriff John Smitherman arrived. What the hell are you trying to do here? Witherston testified, later testified, Smitherman asked when Witherston said he was assuring the blacks that Rowland were safe. Smitherman replied, yes, damn you, you're one of them. Come on, boys. This remark exchanged, assuming Wil- Wilkerson reaccounted re- it accurately, hangs in the air a century later. What did Smitherman mean by you're one of them? One of what? One of whom? Those planning harm to Dick Rowland, who could not be trusted? Wilkerson said he did not know if Smitherman ever explained himself. It is not recorded. Led by Smitherman, the men pushed past three white officers and headed for the courthouse. There, some white citizens had taken it upon themselves to disarm the black men arriving in ever greater numbers. Somewhere in the roiling Tumis, E.S. McQueen decided to be a hero. A former investigator in the, con- the county attorney's office, Mac McQueen, had finished a distant second in the 1920 Democratic Sheriff's primary. A man of less than stern reputation, by the spring of 1920, Mac McQueen was reduced to the dubious position of deputy constable for a justice of peace, perhaps intent on demonstrating that he, not Bill McCulligan, should be in charge, McQueen confronted an African-American man identified in some sources as Johnny Cole. The demanded Cole's pistol. Cole refused in uncertain terms. Mac McQueen grabbed for the gun. Cole resisted. The pistol discharged and all hell broke loose. There you go. Keep your damn hands off other people's shit. If it ain't your pistol to grab, then step the fuck off. You gonna get blasted on. Period.